navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Happy New Year, everybody. Really appreciate you joining me. Uh, we are wondering whether to kick it off today or not because uh, everyone's still trying to settle in, get off the uh, the funk of the holidays, and uh, everyone's got their desks piled high with to-do lists for this week and this year. So thanks for making uh, this CLE and joining me for the next hour, hopefully hour and a half with the Q&A to, uh, to talk about personal trainer and gym negligence cases. So as always, um, most of you probably know I like to do a series, uh, one in the spring that'll get us up to the summer, and then usually one in the fall. So in trying to think about what series to do for this year, for the spring, I had the idea of sort of an a la carte menu of different interesting types of cases. So instead of doing a whole series on one type that you may or may not be interested in, uh, over the next five months, we're going to talk about different types of cases which you can handle. Uh, we can all handle these, and uh, hopefully in the hour or so for each month on these topics, uh, you'll feel that you've learned enough uh, to maybe tackle these cases on your own. So next month, we're going to be talking about dram shop cases. That's liquor liability when people get intoxicated, uh, served alcohol, and cause injury to others. Uh, then we're going to be talking about ski accident cases. Uh, we'll talk about jet ski negligence uh, cases. And last we'll talk about uh, fire, death, and injury cases. And obviously, you can't go through how to litigate these types of cases in one CLE, so I'm going to have to kind of move fast and hit on the highlights. And then depending on the interest that you all express, please give us feedback. Uh, I'll be happy to do more in depth on any of these topics, getting into the weeds on depositions and experts and trying the cases. So um, hopefully you'll pick up some tidbits. So I'm really excited to talk about the uh, personal trainer negligence and gym cases uh, because it's an area that's kind of near and dear to my heart, physical fitness. I've always been involved in fitness. I've worked out at gyms all my life. I've worked out with personal trainers. I have a lot of friends and family members in the fitness industry. Uh, I've done Thai kickboxing, Muay Thai kickboxing. I play tennis regularly, yoga, group fitness. I remember the days of the Reebok step and doing that. So uh, I've sort of seen the industry change. And um, along the way, because of my involvement, I've been consulted on accidents that happen at gyms and whether they're cases, whether they're not cases, whether they're good or bad and how to litigate these. And over the last probably 20 years, I've handled a bunch of these cases and I've litigated them. I've tried them. I've uh, dealt with summary judgment motions and gone to the appellate division. So I'm very familiar with the issues involved. Uh, these cases usually don't settle easily. So you have to know what you're doing. And that's what I'm going to try and help you with to guide you. And as always, any questions that come up, um, you can throw in the chat now. If I can see them during a break, I'll address them if there's time. Most likely, I'll hit on all questions at the Q&A from 2 to 2.30. And uh, then you can always email me, schedule a one-on-one -on -one Zoom with me. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to do that to talk about these cases or anything else. Just scan this QR code uh, next to me here, if I could do it. Yep, right there. Uh, and that'll have links to my one-on-ones and also um, my book, as you saw in that spot. I'm really excited. Uh, my trial skills book, which a lot of people have been asking me when I would do it. 
I've been working on it for a long time and finally got it out. And I'm really proud of what it has in there. So check it out. The Kindle version doesn't have the appendix materials. The print versions do. And the appendix materials are, are I think, very important to have as well. All right. So let's get into it. Personal training uh, and personal trainers, they are fitness professionals. Okay. So, you know, it used to be back in the day, you'd show up at a gym and maybe some, you know, person with big muscles and lots of weights would work you out a little bit and sort of just figure out ways to do it. But personal training has evolved tremendously over the last couple of years and gyms have evolved tremendously. There's lots of resources. There's lots of certifications. There's lots of training. There's lots of systems and thought that goes into physical fitness, lots of publications and studies and books that never used to exist. And with that becomes not only better gyms and better training, but also more of a standard within the community. So what we do as negligence lawyers is, uh, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, the plaintiff was always trying to show that there's a departure from the standard of care or good and accepted practice. And on the defense, you always want to say, no, they they complied with the standard of care, with the with the accepted practice within the community. And that's the same way that you would approach any case involving an injury in the gym and especially with a personal trainer involved. Did that trainer um, do something that was out of the normal course of uh, their their area of expertise uh, or did they fail to do something that they should have done within uh, the normal course of business as a personal trainer and fortunately now there's lots of ways to determine um, whether they did or didn't based on experts who are out there and based on certifications and training methods that uh, they should have um, been availed of uh, before they started working with clients. So we're going to go through that today and how you establish that. Now, what I want to talk about first, because there's so much to talk about, and I'm not going to be able to get to everything, but one thing that always, always, always jumps up out front is defenses. Hey, isn't it an assumption of risk if you get injured while working out? Um, what about those waivers that you have to sign, right, when you go into a gym or start on a training program? And I'm always asked about that before anything else, even from clients like, yeah, I signed a bunch of documents. I think I signed waivers. I don't even know if I could call you to talk about it. What's the deal? So here's the deal. And I think it's important to talk about these defenses first before we get into litigating the case, because um, it's, it's pretty much a threshold issue often. Sometimes it's not so clear. So there's really two defenses to injuries in a gym and injuries with a trainer. One is assumption of risk, and the other is waiver. And I'm going to talk first about waiver, because that's the, the one that there's a lot of, both of these, there's a body of law. And in the materials, I've included decisions from two cases I've handled. One is a pretty robust uh, decision on summary judgment uh, in the case of Gewins versus Streb that's in the materials. And it talks about assumption of risk, waiver, and all that. And then the second one is a case I handled uh, that went up to the first department. And that case is Kim versus Harry Hansen Fitness. And they both talk about what I'm going to talk about now. So it's, it's worth a read if you're interested in getting involved in this area of practice, which I encourage you to do. It's, I find it fascinating and fun and interesting and a little different from most of the cases we handle day to day. So here's how the waiver system works. Generally speaking, 
Um, in other contexts, you can sign away and waive your rights by contract, okay? But when it comes to places of recreation and amusement and pools and gymnasiums, the state legislator in New York and many other jurisdictions, if you're tuning in from a, a state outside of New York, have laws on the books that say, wait a second, you know, you're a big business, you have an amusement park, you have a ski mountain, uh, you have a fitness chain. Uh, we don't want you in this fine print to be able to insulate yourself from liability. It's not fair. It's not fair that, you know, if uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith want to bring their kids to an amusement park and uh, when they buy their ticket on the back of the ticket in the fine print, it says if you're injured at the park, you can't sue us. You waive your rights. We don't like that as a policy, as public policy. So in these places of public amusement and even private places that you pay to go to, um, there's a law on the books, General Obligations Law, G-O-L, General Obligations Law, Section 5-326. 5326, it's in your materials. You can check it out after this, after we're done talking. Uh, but it's there, and I'm going to tell you the highlights of it, okay? What it basically says is that agreements that exempt pools, gymnasiums, places of public amusement or recreation, and similar establishments that exempt them from liability for negligence, they're going to be void and unenforceable, okay? Um, if it's required as part of a membership application or a ticket of admission, okay, they're, they're voiding those, okay? They're not valid. So if someone comes to you in the context of a gym injury or personal training, first of all, you're going to want to see, did they sign a waiver? Uh, did they sign forms that talk about waiving the right to sue or acknowledging an assumption of risk? Then the next step is, is that waiver valid? Does general obligations law 5-326 apply to this scenario? And the answer is it depends, right? Like everything else we do in law. And I'm going to try and, and compare and contrast when these waivers are valid and when they're not valid. They are valid if the defense can show that you are in an instructional only setting where you're going to a place specifically for instruction and there's no uh, public amusement, there's no other classes going on, you are showing up for instruction. So some examples, um, martial arts instruction, boxing, uh, trainers only one-on-one -on -one agreements where you hire trainer Andrew Smiley and I say, I'll come train you at your house and we're going to work on that. And you have to sign a waiver with me that you're not going to sue me because you could get hurt while we're working out. Those waivers are valid. They're valid because there's more of an equal playing field. And it's kind of presumed that if you're hiring someone directly and only to instruct you and they're making you sign this waiver form, that's going to be valid. That doesn't really apply to the general public places of amusement. If you're going in for a kickboxing class or a boxing class, you know, you could get punched in the face. You can get hurt, right? It's instructional only. Those are going to be valid. However, if let's say you join Crunch Fitness 
or LA Fitness or Planet Fitness or one of these big gym chains. And all you do is you sign up. You just want to get fit. It's the new year. I want to go to the gym. I want to work out. I want to use the equipment. I want to take all these great classes they have, whether it's yoga or cardio fitness. And if they make you sign a waiver for that, that's not going to be valid. All right. Now, obviously, fact patterns can intertwine both and get a little tricky. And so the cases that I've cited for you, um, you're going to see how, how they apply the facts to this. So it's going to be very fact based. It's going to be whether you're paying for admission, whether it's instruction only, or let's say the typical scenario that we see is one where you decide you want to get fit. You join Crunch for example. Um, and as part of Crunch, they have you, uh, they offer you some uh, free training sessions with your membership. You meet with the trainer and then maybe you agree to sign up and purchase a pack of 10 to continue on. But you can also go to the gym anytime you want, work out, take classes, take a spin class or yoga. All right. In that situation, the waivers are not going to be valid because think big chain, think you can go work out on your own, you can be there. Those waivers are held not to be valid, okay? One of the cases I cite, uh, the first department case of Kim versus Hanson Fitness, in that case, my client Bernard Kim uh, worked out with a trainer at Hanson Fitness in downtown New York at the time. I don't know if it's around. And he was bench pressing really, really heavy weight. There should have been two trainers, one on each side to hold the weight. Uh, there's no way one person alone should have been spotting him. And what happened? The weight came down. He ended up tearing his chest muscle, had to have surgery and all that. So they had a waiver. Now that waiver would have been valid, but the language in it was bad. And it would have been valid because the only way he could go to Hanson Fitness was to meet his trainer to work one-on-one, -on -one. he couldn't go there alone. It was specific for training and instruction. So the waiver would have been valid, um, but the language of the waiver wasn't very good. And you'll see that when you read the decision, okay? If you compare that to the summary judgment uh, decision against Streb, which is a, um, a fitness gym in Brooklyn where they have um, tramp, tramp, balloons and trapezes and um, you can swing from cords and all kinds of really interesting, uh, you know, cool stuff. Um, that one was not going to be deemed valid as a waiver because there was an issue of fact as to whether or not it was instructional or just classes. So as long as you can create that issue of fact, you'll survive summary judgment. So I can do a whole class on waivers and I'm not, but I just wanted to give you that little bit of an overview. So read the GOL statute and read the two cases I cite, and that'll help you understand when waivers are valid and when they're not. Um, just to carry it out, um, many of you know I like doing high performance driving. If And when I go to Lime Rock, every time I enter there, I have to sign another waiver, another waiver. I have to sign usually two waivers before I'm even on track. Those waivers are valid. Again, it's private. It's not open to the public. It's known to be high risk. You know what you're getting involved in. That's not a general place of public amusement. Same thing if you're going skydiving. If you're doing very known high risk activities, waivers are going to be valid. 
But if it's going to a park or an amusement park or a gym or a ski mountain or things you think about where a grandparent could take a, a grandchild and go and have fun together, those waivers will not be valid. All right. And especially when it comes to minors, a parent can't waive a minor's right. All right. So minors are always going to have a right to bring a case, something to keep in mind as well. All right. So waiver is a big thing you've got to consider at first. And then assumption of risk, assumption of risk. You go to work out all my cases. The defense is always waiver and assumption of risk. Listen, they knew they'd be working out. They knew there was a chance of being injured. And the way that I always counter that was by saying no. The whole reason my client hired a personal trainer was because she didn't want to be injured. She didn't want to show up at a gym and not know what she's doing and get hurt. So she wanted to have a trainer who's going to make sure she did things that were appropriate and safe for her skill level. So she didn't assume any risks. To the contrary, she assumed the trainer was going to be that safety net and make sure that they were there to spot her, to give her safe exercises, to progress her, to not jump ahead too far into more advanced moves, okay? And the way that you get over assumption of risk is by making that argument, first of all, getting the affidavit from your client, but also getting an expert involved. Um, it is not an assumption of risk under the pending case law if you can show that the defendant and, their, and or their agents enhanced the risk of injury. And the way you show that is through an expert. So in my case uh, against Streb, my client was paralyzed when she did a forward roll and broke her neck, all right? And there was a waiver, the whole, the whole assumption of risk argument. She had taken class there earlier that day where she did a forward roll. They said, listen, she's doing forward rolls. She knows the assumption of risk. And we had an expert who was very well credentialed in gymnastics and acrobatics and said that, no, they increased the risk to her and explained why, all right? Because she jumped off a little mini trampoline to do a forward roll and she wasn't that progressed. When you add elevation to an exercise element, that increases the difficulty and it increased the risks. And the court held, and you'll see in the decision, uh, including the materials, that that created an issue of fact for the jury, all right? So those are the two big defenses and you can get over both of them. You definitely can in most situations, but you gotta know what to look for, all right? And you gotta know the fact pattern and you gotta get whatever documents there are and see what they've asserted, all right? So now that we've talked about what to be concerned about, we'll get into the details with how you make out a case and what to look for. If you're joining us via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is P-O-D-798. Again, that's P-O-D-798. So during that quick break, I looked, there's some really excellent questions, uh, and I will address all those, I think, throughout the course of what remains of this hour, and certainly, if not, I will address them uh, in the half hour between 2 and 2.30 in the Q&A. Um, let's talk about what types of cases you would, you should consider taking, what to look for uh, if you get contacted by a potential client in these cases. Well, generally, anytime someone is injured during the course of a personal training session, you need to investigate and explore that. Those are the ones that uh, are the big flags for me that this 
is likely something going on here. So again, the focus on the stronger cases are going to be where there is a personal trainer and the injury occurred during the training session, because there is a situation where the person is putting themselves under the guidance, supervision, and hopeful safety uh, by working with a trainer. So why did they get injured? Was the exercise improper? Were they not properly spotted? Were they advancing them too fast? Uh, were they having them do something they shouldn't have done to begin with? Um, did they have any prior conditions that were improperly screened? Um, you know, then you can really look into what was going on there. Those are the cases that usually have the most success and the most meat on the bone, so to speak. The key is, is that there was an injury suffered uh, under the care and guidance of a personal trainer. And again, like other cases, you know, some of you may take auto cases that have soft tissue or smaller injuries. Some of you may take trip and falls that don't require surgery. Um, in gym cases and trainer cases, um, I would recommend staying away from them unless it's an injury that requires some type of surgery uh, be, or some type of serious injury uh, because you are likely going to have to spend money on these cases. You're likely going to have to litigate them. They tend to not want to negotiate these cases early on. I've never had one of these cases resolve early without at least getting into depositions to start it and get some discovery going. Um, so screen them initially, uh, but you're going to want to look for those types of cases. Um, accidents that happen in a gym, uh, and I saw some questions, if it involves sparring, uh, with boxing, with kickboxing, martial arts, just stay away from those. And, and we'll talk about it. But again, those are going to be teaching. Those are cases if you know you're going to be sparring, if you know you're going to be in a program involving physical contact, the waivers are going to be strong. They're usually going to be instructional. Um, and those waivers are usually going to be valid. You can look into them and find out more. All right. But those are usually not good cases. Group fitness, and I saw some questions in here. What if someone takes a group fitness class and gets injured? They show up, they're in a room with 30 people. Maybe it's a cardio box class where they're kicking the bags and all of that and they get injured. Um, I generally stay away from group fitness classes because it's not one-on-one -on -one instruction. It's a group of people. And why did your one client is the only one who got injured out of the 30 people in the class? How are you going to explain that there was something negligent, but everybody else was fine and everybody did fine except this one person? So it's usually much more difficult. Um, the waivers are usually not the issue in group fitness classes. They're, those waivers usually are not valid, okay? For the reasons I said, it's a group of people. It's not private instruction. So those waivers don't apply, but proving negligence and liability in group fitness is usually very, very difficult. Uh, the easy defense is, look, this was a class marketed towards advanced. So you represented you were advanced and you weren't, or this is a class marketed to all levels. And, uh, and you know, there's no reason to think there was any negligence here other than perhaps maybe someone stepped and twisted their ankle or they they missed whatever they were swinging at. Um, there are injuries that can occur absent negligence. So in a group fitness setting, it's pretty hard to establish negligence. So I, I am very suspect usually of those types of cases. So just look carefully at that. All right. Generally, the strongest cases are going to be where there's a personal trainer involved and there's an injury under their care. Other gym cases I see um, are usually where equipment 
causes an injury. Someone will be working out maybe uh, with a system that has stacking weights, and they'll say maybe the pull-down bar broke or the weights collapsed or the pin didn't hold or somehow the equipment uh, on a machine they were using caused the injury. Those are really tough cases because it's very easy to defend those saying it's user error. The only way this could happen is they didn't put the pin in all the way or they didn't set the weight at the right level or they didn't strap themselves in. So that's a very easy and good defense. You have to show there was something wrong with the equipment and that the gym had notice of it. Um, so you first will have to find out what was wrong with it. Uh, then you have to try and get in there. You have to get an expert to look at the machine. You have to find out and get into discovery and see how often do they um, inspect their equipment, oil it, check it. So they could be cases, but they could be difficult ones. I get inquiries quite often for people who are injured on treadmills. Uh, I always hear the story. Uh, you know, they're all, they, they stepped on it, but they didn't know the treadmill was moving. Um, and, and it was moving, um, and as they stepped on it, it, it pulled them back and they fell. Or um, they're on the treadmill and it started going and they weren't aware of it. Or whatever they come up with, stay away from those cases, okay? Um, they're not good cases because treadmills generally are not moving unless a person presses a button. And a person is supposed to take a look and see if a treadmill's moving, uh, if the belt is moving before they step on it. Uh, and if not, it's negligence. And if they're already on it, they need to know and familiarize themselves with the use of it. Uh, and it's really hard to make an argument that there was something wrong with the treadmill. Um, so be careful of those cases. All right. I'm going to give you a, a fact pattern of a case I once handled and tried. Um, I actually have my summation from this case in my... Uh, trial skills book that you just saw the ad for. Uh, so if you're curious how it plays out, you can read my summation. But here's a brief fact pattern I wanna talk about. At the end, we'll see who thinks this is a good case or not. Obviously I went to trial on it. So um, we didn't settle it before trial. My client was a 30 year old bartender. Um, she joins a, a, a well-known gym chain in Brooklyn. She hires a trainer because she wants to make sure she does it right. And the trainer has her do after two weeks of working out together, a couple of sessions, something called a toe touch, where they pull out a, a weight bench, basically a bench that you would lie on, um, but there's no weights. So instead he has her stand up and hop with one foot to the other tap the top of it, jump down, tap with the other foot, the top of the bench, jump down, tap the other part. And right at the beginning of the exercise, instead of getting her foot on top of the, the bench that's pretty low down, it gets caught underneath and she falls backward and puts her hands out to break her fall and she breaks both of her wrists, surgery, open reduction, internal fixation on both wrists. So if someone came to you with that case, would you think it's a good case? Is it assumption of risk? Where's their negligence? How do you argue that case? Well, needless to say, the insurance company and the defense firm weren't impressed by the case. Um, they fought us tooth and nail, and we had to go all the way to trial and all the way to a verdict. So the first thing that you have to do when you're approached in a case like that is an investigation. When you're approached in any personal trainer or gym case, just like you would investigate any other type of case. You want to get medical records. You want to see, um, do the records indicate that they're there for treatment uh, because of an accident in the gym? What is the complaint? What's told by the potential client to the medical providers? See if it's well-documented. You know, if it's not, if the medicals are not 
providing a good causal connection to the injury and to what happened. Maybe it doesn't line up with what the potential client's telling you. That's a red flag. But on the other hand, if you read the uh, emergency room record in this case, and it says uh, patient states while working out at gym, uh, fell backwards uh, and broke both wrists uh, and goes from there, then that's a good causal connection. Okay, so get the medical records, get records from the gym. This is not easy to do, and it's rare that you can get those uh, without starting a lawsuit. It's rare that you can get the waiver forms often without starting a lawsuit. So I'll ask my clients, I'll say, go to the front desk, ask them if they can give you copies of the papers you signed, you know, ask if they have a copy of your file, try and get what you can. Some people can get it, some can't. So again, sometimes you have to take these cases, we have them signed up subject to investigation. You're badly injured, we'll look into it. We'll start the case. We'll get the records. Um, tell me what gym you went to. Give me an idea. Was this a chain? Was this a private one-on-one? -on -one? Do you know if you signed a waiver? These are all questions you want to ask initially when someone approaches you. Get your hands on the membership agreement. If there's a personal training agreement that's separate, get that. See if there's any incident reports. Okay, again, you want to get the ambulance call report. You want to confirm it. Were there any witnesses? Um Find out what you can about the trainer. Uh, find out if there was a trainer, who that person was. Google them. Look up the trainer. You can go on and, and try and find out through different websites. I'll talk about whether they're certified, whether they have experience. Uh, is this a well-known gym uh, for having good training? Or is this sort of a shoddy gym that, you know, I like, uh, I won't name names, but there are plenty of them out there. A lot of them are open 24 hours a day without, you know, qualified people to keep an eye on you. So do that initial investigation. All right. And then what are the theories? What are the theories of negligence that you should consider when you're looking through uh, the injury and asking about what happened? All right. So there's going to be theories of negligence, certainly against the trainer, but also against the gym. And you're going to want to plead those in your complaint and in the case. So generally, again, as I mentioned earlier, someone with training is going to go to a big chain gym. Uh, they're going to be provided maybe with some training sessions. These gyms, that's where they make a lot of money. They push the training sessions on you. They'll give you a complimentary one. They'll ask you to sign a package of 10. They'll offer incentives, especially this time of year. Try and get those documents, all right? Try and find out. Try and see how these sessions are marketed. Uh, we recently had a case and it resolved after the deposition. I have to tell you about this case where our client is working out with a trainer and he's told to go to the, a tire flip machine. Um, so picture a big tractor tire. Uh, those are used in training sometimes. You flip them. Well, now they've actually made a machine. It's like a half tire cut and you can flip it back and forth with another person on the other side or go around. So our client's flipping it. And when he goes to do the first one and he goes to lift it up, he tears his bicep uh, and has to have surgery on that. So we find out the name of the trainer. The trainer's been there a long time. I start doing research. I can't really find out much about him. We get into discovery. We ask for the trainer's file. They give us a card saying that he's certified by an entity known as NASM, the National Academy of Sports Medicine, which is a very good organization. 
and I'm looking at the certification, but it doesn't look like a certification card. And I start doing more and more research and it turns out it's a membership card. I was able to join up online for 65 bucks and become a member of NASM, digital card right there available. And it was identical to this trainer's card. So they had marketing materials at this gym. We have master trainers. We have certified trainers who will get you in the best shape of your life. Sign up now, right? So that's what my client did. And then it turns out I get in and I find out that it looks like I don't think this guy's certified. We start doing the deposition. He says, oh yeah, I'm certified. And he shows me the card. I said, that's not a card, is it? And I pull up the website. I show him my card. I go through the programs. Did you do this? Well, no. Well, I got the books. And so basically he was lying. He was never certified is the short version of the story. So right off the bat, the gym's in trouble because they didn't do their due diligence when hiring. They didn't make sure he was certified. So it's negligent hiring. And not only that, but then they're marketing him as a certified trainer, which is telling my client, I'm here with someone who knows what he's doing, uh, had the proper background and training to make sure I train safely. So we didn't find that out until we got underway, but that's what you need to do. So negligent hiring is a theory, negligent training. Just because someone shows up at a gym uh, and applies for a job at a trainer there, says, oh yeah, I have a certification. Um, I got it online in, uh, in an online course that no one's ever heard of. Can't just hire someone and put them out there as a representative of your gym to train people unless you know that they have a valid certification and you know that they've learned from it. You have to provide your own training and you have to supervise them. So I happen to know that Equinox has their own fitness training program that they put all their trainers through in-house. So you can't just show up with a certification and get put to work. You have to go through their training program. And it's a really good one. And they do things properly. So I know that that happens. But I also know at other gyms, they just, you know, give you the job. Go out and train. All right. You look muscular. You look like you're fit. You've got some certification you've shown us. So negligent training is another uh theory of negligence, another claim you have to assert. And then lastly is negligent supervision, all right? The way the structures work at these gyms is that trainers are going to be supervisors. There's always going to be a personal training manager or supervisor, and they have to supervise. They have to make sure that the trainers are doing things within the standard of care. They're doing things properly, okay? And if they don't do that, and if they let these people just train clients however they want, then getting a trainer at one of these gyms is no different than just hiring a stranger off the street. The gym's not involved in the program and in the methodology of how they're training you. And that's bad. That's negligence. They have to supervise. So again, negligent training would be negligent personal training against the, the trainer. And then you have negligent training of the trainer by the gym, negligent hiring and negligent supervision. So in all these cases, you're going to name the trainer and you're going to name the gym and you're going to allege all of those claims, the four claims. Okay. Now, what is it that you would review? How do you show that a personal trainer was negligent? How do you get there? right? And this is where you need to learn a little bit about what goes into becoming certified. It's not easy. 
And one of the things in the industry they've been trying to do for many, many years, decades, is to have some standardized sort of like how we all take the bar exam uh, and the medical boards for doctors. They're trying to get some standardized uh, exams and certifications uh, throughout the industry, which I think would be great, but they're they're not able to do it. So what happens is to be certified as a personal trainer, there's different ways you can do it. You can find fly-by-night things online, and then you can find in-person. Uh, online's okay, but you, you, there are many that require lots of testing, lots of quizzes, lots of um, in-person uh, work. Uh, so there are some very reputable, reputable certifications that have really become the standard in the industry. So ACE, the American Council on Exercise, is one of them. NASM that I mentioned before, the National Association of Sports Medicine, uh, National Academy of Sports Medicine. So those are really well known. If someone's certified from them, they got a textbook, they took quizzes, they had to do practical exams, they had to take difficult tests, right? Those are good certifications. So that's at a base level. You want to find out if they're certified, all right? Then you want to get the books. I have a, a row of books from all these organizations that are the training manuals, all right. They go through there's chapters on how to evaluate someone before you start training them. Uh, there's something called a PARQ, P-A-R-Q. I gave you a sample of it in the materials. That's a physical activity readiness questionnaire. That's how you get P-A-R-Q, physical activity readiness questionnaire. You know, if someone shows up, you need to find out if they're ready to work out. Do they have a heart condition? Do you worry about them having a heart attack? Do they have a back issue? Um, have they had surgery in parts of their body that may uh, cause problems? Have they, they have any issues? You have to find out if they're physically fit and ready to begin a training regimen. Uh, did they have them do the basics, push-ups, uh, sit-ups, uh, some quick testing of things that they're required to do, fitness checks before they even start it. So you want to find that out. And you're going to look through the gym, you're going to look through the certifying organization and see what they say is the standard for how you test somebody to make sure they're ready to start with personal training before you even put a weight in their hand or have them do any exercise. All right. You want to find out if the trainer went over the goals. What's the person's goal? Why are they there? Are they training because they want to have a better golf swing? Are they training for a specific sport? Do they want to lose weight? Do they want to build muscles and get muscular? Do they want to change their body? What's their workout and exercise history? And what are their goals? That's very important. And that discussion has to be had between the trainer and the client before they begin training them. And then what they have to do is they have to design a program. Program design is where you're going to win your case because it's essential nowadays. Every single training program has a whole chapter on program design. And that is the proper way that trainers train people. They design a program. You have to walk before you can run, all right? So our argument in the fact pattern of the toe tap exercise was why? Why is that an exercise you had my client perform? Why'd you pick that exercise? What is the program that you designed? Did you just say, oh, I like this. I'm going to have her do that. 
Why? What's the purpose? There needs to be a purpose to every exercise the trainers have the client do. Was this to just warm them up? Is this to build strength? Is it for cardio purpose uh, to build oxygen in the system and get the heart rate up? Is it for fat loss? Is it for strength to strengthen the legs? I want to know why that trainer had my client do that toe tap exercise. What was the goal of it? And did they have to do it with stepping up and hopping onto a bench? Why couldn't they do it on the floor? Tap the floor, switch feet, maybe tap a step, switch fleet, switch feet, maybe hold a weight in their hand. So there are things called progressing. And so our argument in that case was that they had her running and jumping before crawling and walking. And my expert in that case explained to the jury that there was absolutely no reason to do this exercise because there was a risk. There's a risk of falling, a risk of tripping up an injury. And to achieve the goals, the fitness goals, you don't even need to add elevation. You could just tap in front and then you can progress it. Once they get that movement of tapping in front of them on the floor, then you have them come over to maybe a low step. And then you just tap on the step. Maybe you give them an exercise ball to hold in their hands without having the hands to move. That creates more difficulty. And there's lots of ways to create movements and progress them, okay, without uh, jumping too far ahead above their ability or increasing risk. So before you're going to have a client jump up to, onto a step or jump up onto a box, you're going to want to make sure they can stand up first and step down before you add them jumping. So these are all part of a program design. It's a way to start someone easy, lower weights or no weights, and then slowly continue to progress them. And they make forms for that. And I gave you a form in the materials. And it says what the exercise is, how many repetitions, how many sets. So let's say they want to give somebody stronger biceps. All right. You want to build big biceps. And that's the goal. I go in to train, I tell the trainer, I want big, beautiful biceps. And that's what I want you to help me with. Well, they're not supposed to bring me over to the heaviest weights in the gym and have me try and lift them. That's when I can really get injured. So the first thing is, is they want to make sure I know how to do a proper bicep curl. And they should start me with a really light baby weight and make sure that I'm isolating the muscle, that I'm not leaning back. Make sure I have the movement down. Then once I do that, then they can increase the weights. Then they can move my arms out or in or in different ways to hit the muscle once I show that I'm progressing. And then maybe after I've done five pound weights in my hands, the next session, they're going to up, upgrade it to 10 pounds. And then maybe they're going to have me do one arms and, and whatever it is to progress it. But they need to design this program in advance. And I know for a fact that Equinox because I had a lot of friends and people involved there, that they, their personal training supervisors, will have all of their trainers submit their program design books for their clients. And they'll review them. And they'll question, why are you having them do this? They'll make them program and design a program that has um, maybe two weeks worth of training in there, or maybe five sessions or 10 sessions. And then you implement it and you adjust it as need be. But it's thought out. It's methodical. There's a plan. It's not the days when you show up and some buff looking trainer says, come on, let's do this. Let's do that. Especially if you're a novice. All right. There has to be a method to it. And if they fail 
to design a program, if they fail to be able to document and show you that, um, that's a problem. That's a departure. And nine times out of 10, in my cases, there's no program design. There's no requirement. There's nobody supervising it. They're not even keeping track of what they're doing. By the way, I was talking about sets and repetitions. So a bicep curl, one set might be 10 repetitions. So you curl 10 with one arm. That's a set. You take a pause, another set, another 10. So usually they'll break it up into three sets, 10 or 12 repetitions of an exercise, and then they progress them. So you're going to demand the programs, you're going to demand records, and you'll often find that the gyms that you're suing make these programs or forms available. Uh, the case I mentioned where the trainer wasn't actually certified, I said, why are you having him do the tire flip? Well, I wanted to work on this and that. I said, well, did you record it anywhere? Did you record any of these prior training sessions? Nah, I don't think so. I usually just think about it and, you know. That's negligence, okay? Because these days, there's no excuse for that. They should document everything. They should be standing there and documenting it. So program design is a big thing you need to look into and explore. You also want to talk about consent, okay? And risk. If they're going to be arguing a defense saying, you know, oh, your client assumed the risk. I ask all the trainers, did you tell my client there was a risk of injury? Nah, I don't think I did. Did you, before doing this exercise, say you could get hurt? <laughs> no. All right. Or did you say, I got you? Don't worry. I got you. All right. So you want to find out, did they warn them of risks? Did they know what the risks were? Did they know doing this toe tap exercise that there was a risk that they could fall? And would they likely be able to fall forward or fall backwards? And in that case, I got the trainer to say, yeah, you know, I know they could likely probably fall backwards. Well, okay, then do you know what spotting is? Spotting is another area that I've had success in these cases where the trainer is supposed to stand in a position that if the person working out stumbles or falls or can't support the weight, they've got it. They can hold that weight if the person fails while lifting it. Uh, they stumble and fall back. They can stop them. They can catch them. And in my case, we argued, where were you? Where were you when my client fell backwards? Why didn't you catch her? Why weren't you in a position? Do you know what the proper spotting position is? And the way you get all of this is through an expert. An expert's going to say, yes, it's known they can fall backwards. You have to be in a position to spot them. And here's where you're supposed to stand. And here's how you spot. Okay. So these are things you want to look into. Why did they have them do the exercise? Why did they get injured? Why weren't they properly spotting them? Um, do they know the proper spot position? Do they know they're required to spot? So these are all really important things. And the reason that these cases, I've been successful in every single one of the cases I've had, frankly, um, is because they don't document. They don't document it. Uh, they don't document the program. They're off on their phones looking at things. They're not spotting properly. They're so busy trying to maybe work out two clients instead of one or running back and forth. They're not doing their job. They're not doing what they're supposed to to make sure that your client and our client is safe. So that's what you need to look into. So with the five minutes I have left in the program, um, 
what I'd like to just wrap it up with, because there's a lot, a lot of stuff here. So like I said at the beginning, reach out to me, please schedule one-on-one, especially if we haven't met before. I'd love to meet with you. Shoot me an email. Uh, I will try and get back to it as promptly as possible. Um, all the information's on the screen behind me. And if you scan uh, this code, um, you can get to my one-on-one scheduler, the books, the website, the podcast, all of that. So do your homework, okay? As in anything else, preparation, preparation, preparation. Once you find out the gym, go online, see if they have their own training, look up the trainer, look up their credentials, order the books. It's only a couple hundred bucks to register and purchase these books, the training manuals. Those become your standard of care and you confront them with their own training documents. It's really good. Um, if I'm counseling you, if you're a defense attorney in these cases, um, I would be sitting down uh, with your clients who are gyms, and I would make sure that they put an emphasis on supervision and documentation and doing things the right way because they just don't, unfortunately, and it's sloppy and there's no excuse for it. It would be like a doctor uh, you know, treating a patient without taking notes and without saying what the plan is. You know, It's the same sort of thing, just on a different level. So educate yourself, do your homework, and get a good expert, all right? You wanna get a good expert, either if it's a personal trainer, get a good personal training expert. If it's a group fitness, get a group fitness trainer. If it's in like what I did in my gym case, uh, where she was doing an uh, acrobatic move, I got a gymnastics expert. You're going to need an expert because summary judgment is coming down the pike, no, definitely. So you're gonna want to have that ready to go, an expert with an affidavit. That will help you get over summary judgment. You can create issues of fact as to risk, as to negligence. Uh, and then again, when the waivers come in, I saw a lot of questions and I'll go through that with you in the Q and A, but you're really gonna have to do your homework. You're really gonna have to find out, is it a free class? Is it a paid class? Is the risk known? Is it instructional? What's the level of training? All of those things to try and determine it. So um, to uh, spoiler alert, well, I guess to wrap it up, um, for those of you who weren't sure whether the case was a good case or not, uh, with my fact pattern of the toe touch, I thought it was a great case the whole way. He shouldn't have had her do those exercises. He could, he didn't have a, he was certified, but he didn't have a, uh, a program design. There were safer methods, uh, to the madness and methods to progressing her. And lastly, he wasn't spotting her. And I got the guy to acknowledge as a trainer, he played, uh, football in college, division one, and he was a cornerback. So in my deposition, I said, oh, you're the fastest guy in the field, right? Well, yeah, you know, you got to intercept and you got to reach out. I said, how come you couldn't get a hand on my client? How come you couldn't get a hand on her, right? And you'll see if you get my book uh, in the paperback or hardcover and my summation uh, before the jury went in to deliberate, I said, you know, ask yourselves this, members of the jury, you know, if he's supposed to spot and he's in the right place, how come he didn't get a hand on her? Does that make sense to you? You know, so these are fun cases to try. They're fun cases to handle. They could be really demonstrative at trial. It's interesting. Uh, the injuries are usually significant uh, when they're injured in a gym. So the values are there. Uh, and a lot of these gyms have arbitration, mandatory arbitration clauses. I'd suggest you agree and just file for arbitration. I do that. The cases move faster, especially with how courts are these days. Uh, and you can get to resolution faster and still get all the discovery you need. So don't be afraid of the mandatory arbitration clauses. So 
Um, there's lots to talk about, and I'm happy to do it in the next half hour, so stay with me. Uh, if not, uh, I hope to see you next month where we're going to talk about uh, the Dram Shop cases. And if you have any other questions on personal training and gym accidents and they're not addressed, just reach out to me. I'd love to chat with you about it. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is POD116. Again, that's POD116. So I'm going to try and get through all these questions uh, through the next half hour. Please throw them in the Q&A still, whatever you've got. Obviously, I see a lot about waivers. That's why I started off. Waivers are a big part of this area of practice. Um, so uh, the first question I have, someone's asking about uh, waivers in a 30-member class where there's two trainers on the floor. I addressed this earlier. Um, I'd be skeptical. Group fitness classes are very difficult to establish negligence. Um, and it's not so much the waiver that's of a concern. I don't think a waiver will be valid in that situation at all, uh, but liability is going to be tough. Okay. And I don't think it's going to be valid because it's not one-on-one -on -one instruction. It's a group class. All right. Um, is a waiver for martial arts and boxing valid for sparring when the student signed up for instruction and not sparring? So pretty much any martial arts or boxing class that you sign up for, I would anticipate the waiver is going to be valid. You know what you're in for. You know you're going in there for physical contact, and you know there's going to be sparring. Um, and if the student isn't aware that there's going to be sparring, I'd be a little skeptical. You know, you joined a boxing gym. Um, it's it's a difference when you join a martial arts or boxing facility as opposed to like cardio boxing where it's a group class and they have all the boxing bags up and everyone's just hitting the bag. That's a big difference. So again, um, if the injury happens when they're just hitting a bag, you know, that's one thing, but if they're, if they're sparring, um, then, uh, it's not going to be valid. However, Let's say someone's working out with a trainer. So when I trained with a trainer a long time ago at Equinox, I did a lot of boxing with that trainer. He was a former boxer. So he'd get out the pads and we'd hit the pads and I got a great exercise, but we didn't spar. But if that trainer said, come on, you're getting really good, let's spar. And I said, all right. And I go into the gym with him and I get punched in the face and break my nose. Then there would be a colorable argument that there is no waiver there. Uh, that, listen, the only waiver I signed was to join the gym. Uh, this was a training session. You know, he told me he'd be safe. He didn't tell me he was going to punch me in the face. So again, it's going to be fact-based. Um, so look at the specifics in your class. Um, again, if there's martial arts or boxing classes that's in a gym and there's no sparring, um, then I don't think that uh, there's going to be a valid waiver. Again, if they're getting into actually contact there better be a waiver for that, okay? Um, someone's citing a bunch of cases for me. I always hate when people do that because you presume I know what these cases are. So I don't know Scaduto, Turcoat, Maddox, but in these cases, a participant who is experienced is injured by a risk inherent, uh, one with softball. So again, looking at the facts, if somebody's a star softball player and they go and they enter a softball tournament, and the pitcher hits him in the face with a fastball, um, that's not going to be, in my opinion, a valid claim whether there's a waiver or not. Uh, but generally, 
if someone has experience in an activity and they're joining an activity at a high level, um, those waivers are going to be valid. All right. Again, think about it. It's when it's a void against public policy, they're trying to protect the public. These are things that so the 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 more general it is, the more likely the waiver will be void as against public policy under the GOL. All right. The more fine-tuned and narrow it is, where you need some expertise and you know what you're doing, or you have to have a higher level or it's specific instruction, that's where they're not going to be valid. Okay. Um, someone's asking me to reference the two case citations. They're in your materials. You'll find them there. All right. Someone's asking about a waiver in a gym such as F45, where the workouts are workouts are standardized. So I don't know F45, but I know what you're talking about, like Orange Theory, and there's some others where the trainers are just there to walk around and motivate. Again, those waivers are probably not going to be valid. Uh, because you're in a group setting. It's not one-on-one -on -one specific instruction. It's a program designed for everybody. So I would tend to think if you can establish negligence, you could probably get over the waiver argument in those classes. Um, again, the negligence is going to be harder to prove. Why did your client get injured on the rowing machine and nobody else did? Um, what was it? What was the negligence? So again, it's a two-step process. You still have to show negligence. Um, they weren't training uh, within the standard of care. It was a bad design. It was dangerous, all right? Um, and you're going to have a hard time proving that in these types of programs that are run every day across the country and standardized. You know, they're going to come and say, look, we have a thousand people a week doing this and no one got injured. You did, um, but that's a risk, okay? And that's inherent, but there's no negligence here. So separate the waiver from the strength of your liability case. Okay. Uh, someone's asking the following. Even though a waiver may be valid under normal circumstances, what about an injury arising out of circumstances that occur which no one could ever reasonably anticipate? So again, if it's not foreseeable, then you can't prove negligence. If it's not foreseeable, somebody would be injured in that manner then you're not able to prove your negligence regardless of the waiver. If some unforeseeable thing happens, um, you're not going to be able to establish negligence as a result of it, all right? You still have to prove foreseeability. So in my case, in the toe tap, this trainer was trained to know that someone could misstep, could fall back, and could get injured. They can't make that argument, oh, I never thought they'd fall, or it wasn't foreseeable then you're negligent if you didn't think that because your training shows that you should have been aware of that. All right, um, next question. Asking what the following credentials mean on a sports trainer's business card. We have ATC, CSCS, Practice Athletic Trainer, DME Supervisor. All right, um, I'm not sure of some of those, but I do know that CSCS is a certified strength and conditioning specialist. Um, that's a good certification. Uh, ATC, I'm not sure, but I would tend to think if somebody has that on their card, they probably know what they're doing and they're probably credentialed. A certified strength and conditioning trainer um, uh, is a program, a legitimate serious program. So they that person probably knows what they're doing. Uh, and I would look up the others, but that looks legitimate for sure. Um, 
And if that sports trainer has those credentials and they make an errant judgment regarding a high school student's ability to participate in a basketball game following an injury, would that be a general negligence or medical malpractice? So it's not medical malpractice unless the claim is against um, a medical provider. So obviously a personal trainer is not a medical provider. All right, so it's not a medical malpractice case. It would be a negligence case. The problem is you'd have to look into the details. Uh, a trainer or someone overseeing a basketball program, that trainer for that program isn't going to be the one who clears a participant uh, to play. That is going to be that participant's doctors. So if there's an injury, let's say you're talking about a situation where it's a knee tear, the person uh, is a high school, college, or even professional athlete, um, they have surgery on the knee, the basketball says, basketball trainer says, all right, I think you're good to go. Um, unless they're getting sign off by uh, a doctor, I think that would be the negligence. I don't think that type of trainer should be, is the appropriate person to clear somebody. It would be the surgeon. So that trainer should reach out to the surgeon. And if that trainer didn't do that and cleared and said it, then I'd make an argument that that is a, a viable action for negligence. Okay. Okay, someone's saying if a valid waiver is present for a training-related environment, would the waiver defeat an elevated risk theory that defeats an assumption of risk defense? Great question, Kevin. So here's the theory. There's a valid waiver, all right? Maybe it's a one-on-one -on -one training, but in that one-on-one -on -one training, the trainer did something that really enhanced the risk and caused the injury. Um, Depending on the waiver, if it's a setting where it would be valid, a one-on-one -on -one training uh, situation, for example, uh, depending on the language in that waiver, then it could. It could. So I'll give you an example. You hire me to train you. And I say, all right, Kevin, I'll train you, but you got to know there's risks involved. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to push you hard. I'm going to get you fit. But you're going to sign this waiver, which says that even if I'm negligent, if I do something wrong and you get hurt, you can't sue me. And I need you to sign this if you want to work together and you want me to train you. And you say, all right, I'm sure I won't get hurt. You sign that waiver. And my waiver protects me 10 different ways. It says um, you agree not to sue me. You agree that you do not have the right to sue me and you're waiving your right, even if I'm negligent. Right. I put that in there and you sign it. That's a valid waiver. And if I enhance it, uh, where we're talking about getting beyond the assumption of risk defense, um, if the waiver's valid, you're stuck because you signed up with me and that was the deal and you knew what you're getting into. So good question. If it is valid and the language is right in it, then uh, you're out of luck. Uh, the waiver is valid, but let's say it doesn't say anything about uh, that uh, you can't sue me for my negligence. It just says you can't sue for risks associated. Then you can bring it. That's the Hansen case. That's the decision you'll see in the materials. The waiver was valid, but the language was horrible. The language said, uh, but for uh, negligence by the defendants. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. So if they said you're waiving your right. Even if we're negligent, we would have been out of luck, but the language was bad. They should sue the person who wrote that waiver for malpractice. Okay. All right. Bruce is asking, there's a brain, a burn injury from a steam room or sauna that's too hot. Uh, is that a case against the fitness establishment? 
So that case, other cases similar to that, where an injury happens at a gym, where it's not really involving a trainer or fitness program, that's going to basically be, uh, you know, property owner uh, negligence. So you're going to have to show that they should have made sure uh, it complied with standards for temperatures of the sauna and the heat. Maybe they should have a warning sign, stay away from the hot rocks or whatever it is. But that's sort of out of this a realm what we're talking about that's not going to be waivers or anything like that that's really a premises case that type of situation roy is asking what if the cable snapped on a leg press machine so again then you're either going to have a negligent maintenance or a product liability case or a misuse all right why did the cable snap you have to find out first of all um, did they set up the machine wrong? Did the person using it do something wrong? Um, did they not set it up right? Um, or was it just an uh, old machine? Uh, did they inspect it? So I would look into inspection. Uh, again, the gym's going to have to have notice, but you're going to want to find out how often do they inspect the leg press machine? How often do they oil the cables? Do they check the integrity of the cables to make sure they're solid? And they've got to come up with that. You're going to have to get an expert. You're going to have to do a DNI of the machine. You're going to have to show most likely it's not a products case. Most likely it's a wear and tear. Maybe it was rubbing up against something. Um, so you're going to have to show notice, uh, either um, actual where someone said, hey, there's a problem. It looks like it's fraying. Maybe they have it in their notes somewhere and their maintenance records. Uh, or constructive notice. You have to show that they have to check all of the equipment and make sure everything looks fine. And if they come back to you and they say, yeah, I'm the head of maintenance. I check the machines every day. I check the leg press. I checked it the day of. Everything looked fine. There was no nothing uh, showing any issues. I don't know why it snapped. It must be a, a product case. It's going to be a tough case, but that's the only way you can approach it, either as a product or as a failure to inspect and maintain, and also look if there's any way that an individual setting up that machine could have, uh, the client could have done something improper. All right, uh, Nicholas is asking, is there a component of determining whether a particular exercise is appropriate for a trainee, in particular older people or those coming in post-injury? Absolutely, Nicholas. That's why program design is so important, all right? If I show up, at a gym and meet with a trainer at that gym and say, yeah, I want to get a 10 pack and I want to work out and get back in shape for 2024. And my father guy who's 85 years old shows up and says the exact same thing. The program designed has to be different. It has to be different for me and my father for various reasons, primarily age. And there's a whole area of study for working with elderly um, elderly clients. And my father and mother are both in their 80s and they both work out weekly and they have, tr they have trainers and the trainers are trained in working with elderly people. They know what exercises you do to strengthen muscles, to keep the bone straight, but without overdoing it or having them do things that could injure them. So there's training specifically in chapters in these training manuals on how to assess um, people and how to work with elderly people to make sure that it's safe and you're not going to injure them. Same thing with post-injury. If someone presents to a personal trainer, that personal trainer should be taking down this whole history. Any injuries I should know about? Oh, you just 
had knee surgery last month? Well, has your doctor cleared you? I'm not going to train you until your doctor gives me a, a clearance saying I can do everything or what your limitations are. So that would be negligence. All right. But again, they often point back and say, well, the client never told me, never told me they just had surgery. All right. You say, well, did you ask? Well, yes, I asked, or I don't know if I asked. So like anything else, it can be fact-based in that situation. Uh, Ruth, you're asking about my client with the toe tap. She was 30 and her fitness level was beginner and basic. Okay. All right. David um, has given me a couple scenarios of where there could be liability. All right. Scenario one, client goes to her first Pilates class, requested instruction before the class. The leader said, no, just follow the class. And the client seriously injured. All right. Um, there was no instruction regarding the use of the machine. The only person around to ask was another member. Um, she stepped down with her left foot, which was already near the ground, reaching for the left handlebar and the right foot piece suddenly comes up and nearly causes a degloving injury of the right leg. So in that scenario, um, I would definitely look into the equipment involved, that Pilates unit that she was working out on. I do a lot of research. I look into the warnings that come with it. And then if she does that and she attends a class and it's this type of Pilates elliptical machine that if it's not used properly could cause a degloving injury, um, then they do have an obligation to train them before they get on it or warn them or see if there's warnings on the machine, all right? So, and if there's a failure to warn, then that's a theory, a products theory against the elliptical manufacturer. There's no warnings on there. And if it, it requires verbal warnings and training before they get onto it, otherwise it could cause injury, then I'd argue that's a, a theory of negligence for sure. And the waiver probably isn't gonna be valid if it's a group class. So I would definitely wanna look into that scenario. And I guess I'll find scenario two somewhere else. It wasn't under there. All right, Patricia's asking, what about youth sports and all the pay-to-play tournaments, tournaments that are outside of any school sports participation? So those waivers are going to be tough. First of all, a minor can't waive. You can't waive a minor's uh, uh, right to bring a lawsuit. So that's really going to be more of a liability issue, okay? Um, you know, again, the participating in a basketball, baseball tournament, get hit by a ball, um, you know, they're going to look into negligence. Uh, what was done to prevent that? Um, you know, if they're wearing a helmet and, and they, they're in with the right uh, experience level of people uh, and they get injured or if they fall while running, it's going to be very hard to prove negligence. I'm not worried about waivers in those scenarios. I'm worried more about proving fault and negligence. Okay, that's what I would focus in on. Uh, Sabrina is asking, what's the theory of negligence in the bicep tear injury? How is this foreseeable? Great question. So this case was one of those scenarios where I said, you know what? Why did he have him lifting this? How heavy is it? What reason would you have a, a person doing this tire flip case? Um, it has to be pretty heavy if this person has no prior injuries and tears their bicep. So I started looking into it and it's a pretty advanced move and it's very heavy and there could be added weights on it. And when you're telling somebody to engage, it was the very first uh, attempt to lift 
our client said. Put his hands under and right as he's struggling to lift it, he pops his bicep. So the theory of negligence is where's the program design here? Why would he have him doing this tire flip? I want to know why. Is it to build biceps? Because if you're building biceps, you need to start doing bicep exercises that, um, that are not as heavy until the biceps get stronger. And this is not just a bicep exercise. You're getting your legs involved. You're squatting and lifting. Are the quads strong enough? Um, what other exercises did you do with the quads to make sure that they were strong to do this exercise? Um, it's an exercise that's complex. It's involving the biceps. It's involving the quadriceps. It's involving the cardio strength. It's going to get the heart rate up. So you're going to want to make sure that you've progressed the client appropriately, because if you don't and you jump into an advanced exercise, that's where injuries can occur. And that's likely why this bicep injury, it was too advanced. It was too heavy. The client wasn't prepared for this exercise. So when you're not prepared, and if I pick any one of you out of this group and put you in front of that and say, go ahead, let's work this out. It's a great exercise. Go lift this tire. If you've never done anything like that, here's a chance you can tear your bicep as well. So that was the theory. But then we got underway and we start questioning him. And I'm asking, where's your program design? Doesn't have it. Where's your certification? Lied about it. Why were you doing this exercise? Because I thought it would be good. I, I hit the trifecta and ultimately we settled the case uh, before they produced a supervisor that was going to, I said, produce a supervisor or put enough money up to settle the case. And we settled the case for what we thought was a fair number. Otherwise I was going to make the supervisor look pretty bad for having a trainer with no credentials and marketing that he was credentialed and not overseeing and not making sure. I asked this trainer, when you started working at the gym, and even at the time of my client's accident, did your supervisor know why you were doing this exercise? Was this part of the gym's philosophy or was this just your own philosophy? No, it was my own. I could decide how to train it. So that's always a good way because what good you're, you know, my client goes to this gym and expects the trainer uh, is getting some training and supervision from the gym. Not that the trainer is just going to do whatever they want. There's some uniformity in the process. Michael, how are you? Thank you for the compliment on the CLE. With equipment injuries, assuming the expert establishes the machine was defective or failed, do you name the product company or do you wait to see if they bring them in or focus on the gym that should have inspected it? You got to bring the product in. I would do it right away. You can't count. Uh, I never want a defense firm uh, making out a product liability case for my client. I want to be making it out. Um, for obvious reasons. So if your inspection reveals that there was a defect and the defect should have been uh, found through the course of normal inspection by the gym, you bring them both in. Uh, but any defect that you find in equipment, you got to bring the manufacturer in. Okay. Uh, Ronald, how are you, sir? Asking 83-year-old woman asked trainer how to use a Stairmaster at the gym. God bless her. She begins to use it, wants to get off, but the stairs movement prevents her from reaching the top button. She falls and breaks her shoulder. Is there a liability because the trainer left her without demonstrating how to turn off the machine while it was running? Wow, that's a really interesting fact pattern. 
So there's a couple of things here. First of all, if you're an 83 year old woman and you've never used a Stairmaster before, you show up to the gym, most likely this was a gym membership, right? Not one-on-one. And she goes to the cardio area of the gym where the, all the different equipment is. She sees the Stairmaster, sees a young person with a great physique, says, oh, I'm going to try that out. That looks interesting. I want to try it out. Calls over the person on the floor, says, how do you use this? The person shows them how to start and stop it. It's usually the same button. Um that's going to be really fact-based. I think that um, on the one hand, she didn't hire that trainer. That was just a floor trainer. Um, so, you know, why is she at 83 on her own getting on this machine? And what did that trainer say? I'd really want that deposition. That trainer might have said, listen, you may want to start with something easier. And maybe the 83-year-old woman said, no, no, I know what I'm doing. I just haven't. This is a different unit, a different manufacturer. I mean, to me, to me, I'm going to want to know a lot more about that discussion and how involved that trainer was and why the 83-year-old decided she wanted to use a Stairmaster at a gym. Um, so I think you get beyond waiver. Uh, I think there may be culpable conduct, uh, but again, uh, you you might want to start that case and get that deposition and find out what you can, but it's going to be tough. Uh, and you also, I'd really, really press the client, you know, why Stairmaster? What's your experience in working out? Why didn't you work out with a trainer supervising you? What did you say to the trainer? What did the trainer say to you? Did they show you how to start it? Because you had to start it. Wasn't that the same button to stop it? And why was it going so fast that you couldn't reach the top button? I mean, these machines can move very slowly and you should be standing right there where you can reach it. It's not like you go down the steps and you can't reach the button. So something doesn't sound right to me. Um, my gut would tell me that that's not a case, um, but I'd want to find out a lot more. Okay. Uh Bruce asking me my opinion about the ISSA certification. So I know of that. I think it's the International Sports Science Association or Academy. Um, I think there's different ones. I think I had a case once against Crunch where the trainer had that certification, but it was a real basic certification that, um, you know, really didn't give them much. So don't focus so much on the certification as unless it's an independent trainer as much as the gym. So, you know, that person shows up to the gym and the gym hires that person. You're going to want to say, well, are you familiar with the certification? Do you know if this trainer learned what needs to be learned? Did you supervise? So um, that may be enough to get the person in the door to work for the gym, but then it falls on the gym to make sure they're properly trained and certified. But hey, use it against them. Get the ISSA training materials and find out, did they at least follow what the ISSA suggests for screening, training, program design? Uh, any legitimate training entity is going to have screening and program design as part of the training and part of what they're expected to do. And they usually don't do it. So you'll be okay with that. Um, Zachary is asking considerations beyond what I've already addressed for a case of a minor obtaining a serious injury in a competitive gym class. So, oh, gymnastics class. So again, those are going to be really tough classes. If they're in a competitive gymnastics class, they've probably been doing gymnastics their whole life and it's a risk and it's injury. 
So you're going to really have to show negligence um, that they were having her do something she shouldn't have been doing out of her wheelhouse. Um, you know, I'm not so much concerned about waivers in that situation. That's going to be one where you're going to need to get an expert. So let's say you've got a young person, 12 years old, who's been doing gymnastics since he or she was five. Uh, they're progressing to flip off the pommel horse and uh, they do a flip and they, God forbid, uh, break their neck and get seriously injured. Then what I would do is I would bring in my gymnastics expert and ask them to look at this, say, and my expert may look and say, oh, well, this person had done Palma before. They progressed her properly. Uh, they had her doing the regular progressions. This is first you just do a hop over. Uh, then you do a basic flip, uh, you know, whatever it is. Then then you do a twist. Then you do a flip and a twist. I mean, there's progression is always the way. So if they were properly progressed and the injury happened, you're not going to be able to prove negligence. But if they put them in to do something that they were not ready to do, then you would have an expert assist you and say that they didn't progress them properly and it was too dangerous and it was negligence. So that's where it's really important to have a good expert. Okay. Uh, Eric is asking me, have I had any cases where in a spinning class, the instructor has the clients do such things as push-ups while spinning on the bike? <laughs> I haven't had that. So again, it goes. So if I'm picturing that they're spinning and spinning and then with their handles, maybe doing some kind of push-up like that, I don't see any harm in that. I don't see how that could create an injury. Uh, I'd want to learn a little bit more about it. I would tend to think that their waiver would not be an issue, but that um, looking at what the push-up is that they had them do, did they have them hop off the machine and do a push-up and then get back on the machine? Maybe that tires their upper body out. Um, and then what was the injury? You know, how, how are they injured doing it? So that would be really fact-based. I haven't seen anything like that, but I'd want to find out a little bit more about it. Again, my gut tells me not a good one there. All right. Jackie, uh, Jacqueline's asking about a martial arts setting. Again, it's going to be really hard. Waivers are going to be valid. Training, it's going to be very, very hard to have success. Um, I would stay away from martial arts cases. I just would. Uh, you're going to have a lot of obstacles to be successful. All right. Um, Martin's asking a private gym in your co-op. Trainers are required to have insurance, but some members are using out-of-state trainers or others with their smartphones. What are your thoughts? I see that a lot. That's fine. Uh, private, you know, as long as the co-op's not going to be liable uh, because you don't employ the trainers, you're just providing it's part of the co-op. The gym is there. So I'm not worried about any liability on the co-op and the trainers are going to, you know, have their own liability. If someone's injured uh, while working out with a trainer, that's a case. Uh, if they haven't signed a waiver, if they sign a waiver, it's going to be a tough case. All right. So those are the last two that I'm going to address. I thank you all as always for joining me. I really enjoy this. If we haven't met yet, please sign up for a one-on-one -on -one with me. Love to meet with you. Tune into the podcast, uh, email me, stay in touch and come back to let's learn some stuff about Dram Shop next month. And uh, good luck with all these cases. Um, and uh, I think uh, you can all do a great job with them if you read through the materials and apply uh, interesting facts to the case you have.